Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. The Bible tells us to love our neighbor, but we can sometimes translate that a little too literally. Sure, we'll love the person who lives next door, the person who is very like ourselves, but many of us struggle to cast our love a little further afield. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright explores the parable of the Good Samaritan to think about how Jesus defines neighbor and how we should spread our love today. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. Would you turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 is what we'll read today. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, in these moments, may our hearts and our minds be open and attentive to you. May your voice be the voice that is heard, your truth, the word that is spoken. I pray, God, for the leading of your Holy Spirit 
that the words I speak would be words of your truth, that they would be spoken in simplicity, with grace, that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For every good thing that we receive and experience now, we give only to you the praise and the glory. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm 58 years old, and I can say, that's still pretty young, right? Thank you. I would have to say that through my years of all the people I've met, mostly I have met nice people. I have. Now, I have met some people that I wouldn't categorize as that. But mostly, easily, by far, the majority would be nice people. People who would not mind helping you if you were in a moment of need. People who would just as readily show you kindness and consideration as to harm you. Mostly I have met in my life nice people. As I said, there are exceptions. I'm sure there would be for you as well. But mostly I know I've met nice people. As I was growing up, and I've shared this with you before, I can remember vacationing with my mom and dad, and there would be those times, we did a lot of camping, and so we'd pull our camper to a campground somewhere, and bumper stickers were quite a big thing, and I, on occasion I would find a bumper sticker on someone's vehicle that had a little picture of a, a guy with a halo over his head, and it would simply say, the Good Sam Club. And I'd, I didn't understand exactly what that meant until mom and dad explained to me you know, that that meant that, that that person was the kind of person who would see a traveler in need and be willing to help, someone who, like the person described in Jesus' parable, or, or this text, I might say, uh, is willing to stop. And, and through their explanation, I came to understand that there was a link back to something that Jesus taught. This passage um, teaches on a children's level, and we're continuing, in fact, we're bringing to a close today this fun series we've been in about looking at some very familiar texts of the Bible, uh, often that are taught to children. This probably falls among them. It's easy to teach how, how Jesus taught that if we are to be someone who uh, follows after him to be a disciple of Jesus, we would be expected to be a compassionate person, to be a helpful person, to, to, to see someone in need and be willing to help them. That's the kind of person that is a follower of Jesus. But as we so often see, when Jesus frames his teaching, he, there, there are layers to it, and very often there's a deeper meaning than what we often remember from a story. This narrative is more than just one that teaches us to be a nice person. It is, it is a text that challenges something that still affects our our, our relationships with one another as we live together in this world. And I think we can see that, we can see that deeper level 
by asking ourselves one very simple question. When Jesus told this, why was it that there was a Samaritan included in this? And by the way, we're not really told that this is a parable. Now, if you have a study Bible that puts titles over sections of the Bible, it's very likely that it says the parable of the good Samaritan. But Jesus doesn't lead into it by saying something like, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, you know, which most, a lot of his parables often are led into in that fashion. He doesn't say this. And so it, it's possible that this is actually something that happened. The text really doesn't tell us one way or another. But since we usually treat this as a parable, I'm just going to kind of keep it in that framework and ask if, if Jesus is telling this as a parable, why would he choose to include a Samaritan? If his point is only to say that we ought, we ought to pattern our lives after someone who shows us an example of kindness, he could very easily have done that without doing the Samaritan thing. Oh, here was, a, here was a priest, you know, the religious leader. He goes along. He doesn't give us the right example. Likewise, a Levite after him who would have been seen. You know, these would have been the kind of people you would expect to give you the godly example. But he didn't do it. And so Jesus could have said, and then came along did this common Jew he wasn't an overly religious person. He wasn't a religious leader. He didn't hold a position. He was just a common Joe or Jew. <laughs> and he comes along and he does the right thing. Pattern your life after him. He could have made the point doing that. But he took it another level. And I think he did that so that he could put his finger on animosity that resides deep in the human heart. And he knew it was there, and he didn't pass the opportunity to bring it out. And that's why Jesus chose as the example of this parable, a person who would have been highly despised by Orthodox Jews. You see, to a Jew, or to someone who saw himself or herself as a, as a good, pure Jewish person, a Samaritan would have been... I've heard it framed like this, and this is not a bad way to kind of uh, uh, frame it. To them, Samaritans would have been known as traitors and half-breeds. That doesn't sound very kind, does it? But we have to remember that there's a reason they would have been seen like this. These are people where there's a history involved. Samaritans and Jews were not just two different people groups who had no interaction with another. There's a long history that leads them to this point. And I think sometimes that's why we fail to appreciate the impact of what Jesus taught that day. So let's 
let's try to have an understanding here if we could. And I, anyone would uh, certainly agree that you can't do justice to history by a, a, a two-minute nutshell overview. Okay, History is more rich than that. But just for the sake of helping us understand, let's remember kind of where the whole Samaritan thing comes from. If you'll remember in the history of the Jewish people, they started as a, as a coalition of 12 tribes under a united kingdom. Saul was the first king, then came David, and then came Solomon. Okay? After Solomon, the kingdom got divided. It got divided because Solomon, in his uh, inattentiveness to keeping a pure worship of God, allowed some of his foreign wives to come in and have their influence, and so he started to allow the worshiping of foreign gods among Jewish people. And because of that, God said to Solomon through a prophet, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father David, but during your son's reign, I'm going to tear the kingdom into two, and there will be ten tribes that will be torn away from you. So lo and behold, after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king in his place. There's another guy called Jeroboam who is an Ephraimite. Uh, he comes into play. They go to this place called Shechem uh, up in the, in the territory of Ephraim, and that's where Rehoboam becomes king. One of the first things he asks is, uh, how should I go about governing these people? The older, more wise people uh, brought to his attention that, you know, your, your dad was a great man, but he had a heavy burden upon the people. There was a lot of building going on. There was, there was a lot of burden upon the people. The people were asking for that burden to be lightened. And so they, they suggested to uh, Rehoboam to put a lighter burden upon the people. And, and they said, if you put a lighter burden upon us, we'll be faithful to follow you. So then Rehoboam turned some, some, to some younger, less wise counsel, and they said, no, what you ought to do is just ramp it up even more. And it's that counsel that he took. And so he said to, to the people, you think, you think my father's burden was light. I'm just going to make it even that much worse. And so ten tribes of people said, fine, we're out of here. That's not exactly how the Bible reads, but that's essentially what they said. And so the, the, the kingdom gets torn apart. Jeroboam is raised up. He becomes the first king of what becomes the northern kingdom called Israel. And so there you have a division that's, uh, that takes place. Interestingly enough, one of Jeroboam's first things that he does is a political move. Do I realize that we're a little over a week away from an election? Yes, I do. And it's exactly why I want to throw in the reality that one of the things that kept them divided was not religion, it was politics. Now, I said it. Okay? But he says to himself, you know what, wait a minute, we are people who have our worship center in Jerusalem, and if I allow these people to keep going back to Jerusalem, they're eventually going to go back and, and they'll all be under Rehoboam again. And so what he does is he creates two worship centers in the northern area, and he creates two, guess what, golden calves. Tell me there's not irony in the scripture. He, he makes two golden calves. He says to his people, Here are, here's the representation of God who has delivered you, and you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore, so we'll, you, you can worship now here in this northern kingdom. 
bad move, okay? So it's kind of a political ploy to keep the people loyal to him. Advance forward a few hundred years, and eventually what you have is that the world during that time is under an Assyrian reign. Assyria is the world power at that time. Eventually they come into the northern kingdom and they, uh, they, they uh, defeat it. They, and what happens is when the Assyrians defeat the northern kingdom of Israel, they do two things that kind of work together. One of the things this they, that they do is they take the native people away into captivity, and so there's this vacuum of, of Israelites, and then they take non-Jewish people and they move them into that land, okay? Now, it takes some time for this really to take effect, but over a couple of hundred years, you have an extensive intermarrying that happens, okay? So the people who, are, who once were purely Jewish by heritage, by ancestry, are no longer that. They have intermarried with these foreigners, okay? That comes into play and becomes important around the time of the 530-something when uh, after, after Babylon has defeated the southern kingdom, they've carried uh, captives away, and then when the Persians come into world power, one of the things that happens, and you read this in the book of Daniel, is that the Persian king gives permission for Jews to go back into Jerusalem and to start to rebuild it. They can be rebuild their temple, they can be rebuild their city, and you read in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra in the Old Testament that there's this rebuilding campaign that goes on. I would recommend to you later today, sit down with your Bible and open Ezra chapter 4 and read it. Make a little note. What happens is that Jerusalem is the, the rebuilding campaign is going on, and the way that Ezra has it written is that these enemies of Judah and Benjamin, which were the, the southern tribes, tribes that were left, the enemies, some Bible translations would say adversaries, show up, and they ask to join them, the, the, the tribes, in the rebuilding of the city. And they say, you know, we're like you. We, we worship the same God as you. We've been sacrificing to the same God as you as far back as, as such and such. And we would like to help in your rebuilding campaign. Do you know who the quote-unquote enemies or adversaries are referenced there? They're Samaritans. They are the people who have shared a, a, a similar history and ancestry, but not only for religious purposes, but because of political reasons, they have kept themselves divided. They show up and offer to help, and their offer is rebuffed. They are told, no thank you, we will do the rebuilding ourselves. And so what do the Samaritans do? They write a letter back to the Persian king. And they say to the Persian king, Oh, king, you, need, you know how that buttering up goes? Oh, king, you know, we're, we're doing this for your good. You need to know what a rebellious people these Jews are. You're letting them go back and to rebuild this city. And we just want to warn you that if you allow this rebuilding campaign to be complete you will never again have influence over these people. And guess what happened to the building campaign? 
That's right, it got the rug pulled out from under it. Now ask yourself a question. If you see yourself as a good Orthodox Jew interested in, re in rebuilding the temple and the city of Jerusalem, what does that do to your opinion of the ones who wrote the letter to the Persian king? Oh, they just became your fav favorite people, didn't they? No, they didn't. Okay. You see, the history just kind of keeps building up. And then after the, the, per the Medes and the Persians are out of power, then you have Greek reign that comes on uh, during the, the power, during Alexander the Great and some of the other uh, Greek uh, rulers. There were times when the Samaritans sided up. They would uh, side with the Greeks in their military campaigns. Eventually, there was a temple, temple built in Shechem that was to rival the one that was built in Jerusalem. At some point in history, that temple in Shechem was renamed under the name of a Greek god. Now, some of the history is a little... Uh, it, it's not in complete agreement. We don't know if it was willingly or unwillingly on the part of the Samaritans. But again, if you're a good Orthodox Jew... And you see these people of Samaria whose temple got renamed Zeus. What's your opinion of them? It's not hard. And, and, and again, this is just kind of an overview so that you can appreciate that these are people with a history. It is not hard to understand why Samaritans might have been seen as half-breeds, and traitors. And Jesus understood this. So when he incorporates a Samaritan into the narrative, he is not just using a, a person uh, who would have been generic in the minds of his hearers. He is using a person who immediately would have raised prejudicial thoughts, which is exactly what happened. You see, the challenge of this text is not just about being able to see all people equally. It's a challenge of getting past the history that exists, the baggage that keeps us from getting to the real place of value, which is the ability to see the shared humanity that we have. I remember some years ago, a colleague of mine, when I was pastoring in West Virginia, shared something with me. This was back during the early 2000s, the uh, terrorist attacks of September 2001 would have been pretty fresh in the minds of people in this country. Uh, names like Osama bin Laden and terms like Al-Qaeda would have been common household terms. We would have heard them in the news frequently. This colleague of mine was pastoring a multiple point charge, which simply means they had more than one congregation uh, that they were tending to. And usually on, on, in a circumstance like that, you have more than one worship service to attend on a Sunday morning. 
And so those congregations get lined out. You have one, and then an hour, hour and a half later, you have another one, and then you have another one. And for those that are the second or third in line, it's common practice that the worship service begins without the pastor there. You have a worship leader, a lay leader, someone who stands before the congregation and leads worship, and then the, uh, you, you time it just right so the pastor you know, flies in just in time to take the pulpit and preach the sermon, and then they're off to, to the next church. What this colleague said to me was, on a particular Sunday morning, that he entered into one of his congregations. I can't remember if it was the second or third, but it wasn't the first. He said, I walked in the door just in time to hear my worship leader say to my congregation, the only good Arab is a dead Arab. I can't imagine, as a pastor, what it would feel like for one of my congregants not only to feel that way, but to stand before a congregation and say that. Was there history involved? Sure, and it was pretty fresh. But here's the danger. When we make biased conclusions about people and we categorize them on nothing more than their race we are wading into this thing that we call racism And Jesus is pretty clear that racism has no place in the life of his disciples. And we wonder if this text is still relevant today. You bet it is. And we should be honest enough to admit that it is still an issue. In the human heart, there is still a tendency to make conclusions about individuals or people groups. And we do it by default based on their race. So much of what we hear in our culture is our expressions of wanting to address the problem. I, I guarantee one way that it won't be addressed is to ignore it. I hear people so often say, well, you know, that just doesn't, you know, that doesn't exist around here anymore. Don't kid yourself, folks. It does. It may not be as obvious as what it used to be, but it still exists. And we so often seem to want to address it by, uh, by our elections or by enacting programs as if electing the right governmental leader 
or enacting the right social program is going to eliminate racism. It won't. That's not to say that there may not be particular things in society that need to be addressed. When we can see actual uh, manifestations and, and say, you know, that, that there's something in the system there that is not right, we can fix that. But racism is not a political problem. It's not a social problem. It's a, it's a heart problem. And it will never be resolved until the Holy Spirit transforms the human heart. Then, then we will stop doing what we've been doing for millennia. Seeing th people through a particular lens. One of the beautiful things about this narrative is that that seems to be the very thing that the Samaritan did not do. We could ask ourselves, well, what about this person who, was, uh, who fell into the hand of robbers? He was on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Was he a Jew? Was he a Samaritan? Was he somebody? I mean, we're not told, are we? We're not told who we were, who he was. Maybe not knowing there's a beauty in that as if it's to say it didn't matter. You could reasonably conclude that what Jesus was implying was that it was a Jewish person. That in itself lends even more power to the story. The fact that the Samaritan came along, saw a Jew, and chose not to let the baggage dictate his actions. What he saw was his shared humanity and his actions were based on that. Allow me if I may to revisit what we read earlier because the Apostle John really does solidify this. We read these verses from 1 John 4 Where the writer says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You see that relational dynamic? That when we confess Jesus, there is an abiding God is within us. We are in God. There is that, that, that relationship that exists together. He says in verse 16, we have come to know and believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. You see, when we, when we approach life coming from the God perspective, we bring love because God is love. And so when we come from, from a God perspective, what we're bringing to every encounter in life is God's love. And when we bring an encounter, when we bring a perspective of love into every aspect of our life, we are working in God's paradigm. The, the two just go together. And John, John affirms this for us. Verse 17 says, By this, love is perfected with us 
so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Can you imagine being able to stand before God in a day of judgment? And God says, did you love everybody like I love them? Well, some. You know, the ones who were really lovable, I did a great job with them. And God might say, well, what about the ones who were unlovable? God might say, what about the ones who weren't like you? God might say, what about the ones with whom there is a history, there's baggage? Did you love them? God's love is perfected in us. That means it's brought to completion that, that we are. This is a very Wesleyan concept to, to be able to love others as Jesus loves them. And you and I might think, that's, that's such a high calling. But that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. And then in verses 20, 20 and 21, John, he just gives us a litmus test. It's like you can take the strip and dip it and see what color it comes out. He said, here it is, folks. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And I think through this whole thing where, where John uses the word brother, it's the same thing as in Luke chapter 10 where he talks about neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Who's your brother? It's the same thing. Are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your brother? John says, look, if you go out into the world and you have this neighbor, this brother, if you don't love them the same way that God loves them, if you don't display love toward them as the same way that Jesus would, don't try to pretend and call yourself a lover of God. It doesn't work that way. So to the extent that we go around claiming how much we love God and yet fail to address the animosity that we would hold toward any group of people. It doesn't work. It's very interesting in this text from Luke 10 that the lawyer is described as one who questioned Jesus in order to test him. He had no idea of the test that Jesus was about to put before him when he threw a Samaritan into the narrative and pointed to him as the one who should be the example. Go and be like he was. Do you remember your children's stories? Since we've been framing our messages so much about children's stories, let me remind you of one that you might find familiar. You remember a guy named, that we called Dr. Seuss? There's a lot being said about him in our current world, but I won't go there. One of the stories that Dr. Seuss brings to us is one called The Sneetches. You remember The Sneetches? The Sneetches were these large yellow creatures. The what? 
That's right, the snakes just lived on the beaches, that's right. It's large yellow creatures, and you know, each one was kind of unique, but they all pretty much looked the same, except for one distinguishing mark. Some of the sneeches had stars on their bellies, and some of the sneeches did not have stars on their bellies. It didn't take long before the sneeches who had stars on their bellies to start to think that they were the better sneeches. We're special sneeches because we have stars on our bellies. And because we're the special sneeches, we can have parties and cookouts and, and celebrations on the beach. And we'll invite ourselves, but the sneeches who don't have stars aren't as good as us, and so they're not going to be invited to our parties. Well, the sneeches without stars were pretty dismayed about this until this non-sneech character shows up whose name was Sylvester McMonkey McBean. I hope I don't have to say that any more than once. He shows up with this great contraption and he says, Oh, I have the answer for you all. I have this great machine that for only $3 each, I will run you through this machine and you'll come out with a star on your belly. So they all take advantage of that, and they put up their money, and they go through the machine, and they come out, and they have stars on their bellies. And then when all of the other sneeches have stars on their bellies, they go to the ones who already had stars on their bellies, and they say, look, we're all the same now. Isn't that great? Now we can come to your parties. And the sneeches who already had stars on their bellies said, oh, no, we can't have this. Heaven's sakes, we can't all be the same. We have to figure out a way to keep ourselves divided for another, from each other. And so Sylvester McMonkey McBean shows up to them and says, Ah, I have the answer for you. I have this great machine that will remove the stars from your bellies. And then you can be distinct from them again. Just ante up your money. And so they paid their good hard-earned money, and they went through the machine, and they had the stars removed from their bellies. And once again, they could say, Ah, look at us. We're now different. We can go back to being uh, different from the other sneeches. And guess what Sylvester McMonkey McBean kept doing? He went back to the ones who had gotten stars on the bellies and said, Look, for a little bit more money, I'll run you back through the machine. You can get the star taken off your belly. And so they got the stars taken off their bellies. And the ones that had the stars taken off their bellies got the stars put back on their bellies. And the ones who had had the stars taken off their bellies got their stars put back on their bellies. And the cycle just continued until they all ran out of money. At which point they realized... You know, I think we've been missing the point. It was almost as if they had to go back and say, what got us started in this anyway? There's almost something human about it, isn't there? To, to pay attention to and, and use the things that make us distinct rather than to appreciate the more important thing that we hold in common. And for every one of us, the thing that we hold in common is our basic humanity, made in God's image, loved and appreciated so much that God sent a son to die for every skin color, for every race, for every nationality. God sent a son to die. And the audacity of one who stood up and said, 
Well, I want to know who my neighbor is. Jesus effectively said that kind of attitude will have no place in the kingdom of God. Friends, as Christians, it's a work of the heart. And if we still hold on to those things, whether they've been encultured into us, taught to us, or just come by default, it's something that we have to address. And I pray that the people called Christian will be the first to take seriously the fact that we hold a basic humanity and God has given us a simple challenge. Love them like I love them. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard to appreciate how great a love there is that reaches past history that moves beyond the baggage that we have between ourselves and other people. But we look to Jesus, the one who stretched out his arms and gave his life and looked upon every one of us with love. God, I pray that, that you would give us grace to be able to look into our hearts and to find those ways that there still uh, that there still resides animosity uh, prejudice feelings that we would have that do not reflect your kingdom and God when we find them by the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit help us to remove them so that we may truly do as you have taught us to simply love others like you love them. We believe that you can. It's not that we can, but you can. And we believe that you will use that to truly make the kingdom of Christ known in our world. And so I pray that you would do it through us for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.